Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Dr. Green is joined by Dr. Yoichi Funabashi, chairman of the Tokyo-based think tank Asia-Pacific Initiative, to discuss trends in the Indo-Pacific and Japanese grand strategy. Dr. Funabashi talks about the evolution of Japan's foreign policy, from the Abe administration to the present day, and the role of the U.S.-Japan alliance in Japan's strategic thinking. The two also touched on Japan's relationship with South Korea, economic security, and Japan's prospects for acquiring strike capabilities. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green. I'm joined by a friend and mentor of many decades, uh, Dr. Yoichi Funabashi, who has held leadership positions in Japan's Asahi Shimbun as the founder and now leader at the Asia-Pacific Initiative, one of the most independent and influential think tanks in Tokyo, and as an author of multiple books on broad geopolitical issues, such as Asia-Pacific fusion, and very detailed diplomatic histories of the North Korea crisis of the so-called NAI Initiative in the 1990s. He's combined the skills of an investigative journalist, an op-ed writer, and an international relations theorist And we're delighted today to talk to Dr. Funabashi about trends in the Indo-Pacific, Japan's strategic trajectory, and some of his thinking on geoeconomics. Yoichi, welcome. Always good to spend time with you. Thank you, Max. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, let's talk about you first. How did young Yoichi Funabashi decide to become both, you know, a journalist and uh, a scholar and um, intellectual leader? Did you have some mentors or some event or some teachers who set you on this trajectory? Well, I was extremely fortunate to learn from Professor Joe Nye at Harvard University in 1975 and 1976 when I was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. I had covered the oil crisis in 1973, and I traveled with uh, then Amiti Minister Yasuhiro Nakasone to several uh, Middle Eastern countries for begging oil. And I really keenly uh, was aware how vulnerable Japan was in terms of economic security. Uh, Japan depended almost uh, 90-some percent uh, on that uh, imported oil from Middle East. And then Japan actually was hit, imposed embargo uh, of oil. Uh, export from Middle Eastern countries. So that's, I think, for the first time, I really made up my mind uh, of seriously studying that uh, international relations and geopolitics uh, and its impact on economy. So I think that I, I published a book titled On Economic Security after I came back to Japan. That was 1978. So my understanding is that visit Nakasone took had a big influence on him. He was a, a Jishu boy, an advocate of autonomous defense and independence for Japan. And people who know him tell me that seeing how dependent Japan was on the Middle East, he became a stronger supporter of the U.S.-Japan alliance. Did you interact with him much or get that impression? Yeah, I think that was the first time I really was aware of that very much delicate balancing act or diplomacy. Uh, it's not the binary, not either or. 
you can and you should explore the ways to pursue both imperatives at the same time. Certainly, you have to be mindful of, of that uh, the trade-offs and the tensions between two, I think, objectives. But it's doable. Uh, and I think that's that it really requires political leadership and uh, acumen. And I think that Japan certainly needed oil from uh, Arab uh, oil-producing countries. But at the same time, it really needed strong U.S. support for Japan's diplomacy to uh, the uh, Middle Eastern countries. And I think Nakasone skillfully achieved that, uh, both goals at the same time. So that trip to the Middle East you took as a young Asahi reporter with then Miti Minister Nakasone is a great place to start the discussion and, and your career, of course, because you said there's not a dichotomy, but there's a tension. I mean, it was the Middle East where Japan first really asserted an independent foreign policy from the U.S. after the war because of the demands for energy. And now we're in a place in Japan's history where the kind of careful balancing that you saw between um, the U.S. and China or the U.S. and the Middle East is fading because of the Chinese challenge. And for the past five, six years, the trend has been much stronger to embrace the alliance to, to counter China. It struck me as quite significant when Abe changed Article 9 to allow collective self-defense, Shudan Tekijiken, which really is a lot of us who are Japan scholars are saying is sort of the end of the Yoshida doctrine in a whole new era. But but historically, where do you think Japan is right now in the evolution of its foreign policy strategy in the sort of Abe and post-Abe era? Yeah, I think I would say also the Yoshida doctrine is finally coming to an end with that Abe administration's political decision to uh, reinterpret that collective self-defense. And I think that was a, a very much significant move and strategy on the part of the administration. But still, Japan uh, still is handicapped on uh, various fronts. We are just hearing a new debate on uh, strike capability, uh, whether Japan uh, really should pursue to build a capability, strike capability, as uh, a missile defense it is now a much more precarious situation as China's uh, missile capability has enhanced so significantly. And also, we have still serious base issues in Okinawa. And uh, it's a, a part of that legacy of that uh, post-World uh, uh, War II. But nonetheless, I, I think that getting back to your observation, uh, I give a lot of credit to our administration as policy uh, to stabilize its relationship with the United States and with China simultaneously. But I think that's only made possible by our administration's learning lesson uh, from that disastrous foreign policy diplomacy of uh, the DPJ government, which caused that relationship with both the United States and China so spoiled it, deteriorated it simultaneously. So the lesson is that if you want to really stabilize the relationship with China, you must strengthen that alliance with the United States. And uh, that's the lesson that they learned very well. And that's the only language that China understands too. As former President Obama might have said, that 
Hatsuyama administration was a teachable moment for Japan on the importance of having a strong alliance to deal with China. Let me ask you, Yoichi, I think of you as something of a realist, but also very much a liberal internationalist. And you and many others in Japan's academic and media world have generally been positive about the Abe foreign policy. It's an interesting merger. It seems that the liberal internationalists and Abe have sort of converged in upholding a liberal international order and a free and open Indo-Pacific. What what happened? Did not did Abe change? Did you change? <laughs> did just the reality of China's pressure force everyone yes, to get along? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's it's because of uh, reality and uh, you know the facts on the ground really have been changing radically because uh, Abe's uh, Indo-Pacific strategy was actually uh, you know brought about in response to uh, China's BRI, One Belt, One Road initiative back in 2013. And Abe administration, Japan's uh, thought it was uh, designed to expand their sphere of influence in Eurasia, as well as maritime region in the Pacific. The first South China Sea and uh, the Western Pacific, China really wants to push against that United States dominance. So uh, I think that's the backdrop of the uh, administration putting forward the Indo-Pacific strategy. So it's really, I think, a combination of uh, pursuing to uh, upholding the liberal international order and also uh, rebalancing strategy in which that Japan uh, needs to get uh, India on board uh, and recruit India into this camp to strengthen that balance of power vis-a-vis China. A lot of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy had roots in, uh, well, I, I like to tease friends in the farm industry and point out that it had its roots in Alfred Thayer Mahan and um, Commodore Perry, who talked about uh, a quad 150 years ago. But in the Japanese context, uh, oh, and by the way, Sakamoto Ryoma and others. <laughs> but in the recent Japanese context, it's interesting because Abe proposed a quad summit. He proposed the so-called Juto Hanenoko, the arc of freedom and prosperity. Some similar kinds of ideas when he was prime minister the first time, 2006. And But the second time, he did much better. I, I think maybe because the first Abe strategy was too anti-China. Whereas the second Abe strategy was more, I would say, pro-Asia or pro-international order. But did you see an evolution from Abe 1 to Abe 2 like that? Or how do you explain the success the second time around? I think Abe's view of China has not changed that much since that first Abe administration through the second administration. Uh, Abe basically does not trust China. And uh, he regards China's policy towards Japan and elsewhere uh, much more becoming to be zero sum. And basically, it's anti-alliance and, uh, uh, you know, harboring that, the ambition to drive the United States out of that region. So uh, I think that's still the case in my view uh, today. But uh, Abe has certainly learned a lesson. That is that he really needs to swallow that pride, nationalism, and he really must be realist uh, at expense of uh, all the others. 
factors. He's a through and through realist. And he certainly is a nationalist, but he's not an uh, ethnic nationalist. I think he's a civil nationalist. Uh, in my view, as Ezra Bogle once remarked. And so I think that's the reason why he has a strong backing uh, from the Japanese public. I think that's the key that China uh, at first portrayed, tried to portray him as a revisionist, a dangerous guy. And, but sooner or later, China had to acknowledge that Abe will not be that easily dismissed. And he, the guy China has to talk about and uh, you know, make a deal. What about Kishida, the prime minister now? Same general continuity, different ideology. How do you see the, the leaders after Abe? Prime Minister Fumio Kishida uh, was a foreign minister in Abe administration for four years, eight months. So uh, I think it's basically a continuation the Kishida administration's policy, foreign policy particularly, uh, is a continuation of Abe administration. I, I think it's, it's very good. I think continuity of foreign policy is extremely important. So that's plus. He perhaps uh, maybe uh, portrayed as a little bit more liberal compared to Abe, but I don't think uh, he's that liberal. He's also a realist. But he ha- had some bit emotional problem with dealing with South Koreans. Uh, when he was a foreign minister, uh, he was very much instrumental in bringing about that agreement on what is called comfort women issues. And he, uh, as well as Abe, put a tremendous political capital and stake on that. And they had a very difficult, found difficulty in reining in and staving off that tremendous pressure from, from the conservative and the right-wingers who are opposed to that. Then we had the Moon Jae-in government uh, coming to power in Seoul, which scrapped that, uh, the agreement, you know, almost literally. That really put Kishida uh, on hot water, and he uh, actually felt betrayed. And that was very much unfortunate. So I think he perhaps uh, feels very much compelled to uh, deal with South Koreans extremely uh, sensitively and cautiously, in my view. You know, if the Koreans elect the conservative candidate, the prosecutor Yoon, in the election next year, um, I think there will be a very different tone out of Seoul. But it's a close election, and it may not be enough to wait and see what happens. I would rate myself, I would rate the Abe grand strategy as an A. But the one category where I'd give the worst grade would be Japan-Korea relations. Because in a balance of power strategy, you know, built around the quad countries, the US, Japan, Australia, and India, around the free and open Pacific, and all of this very, you know, skillful use of external balancing of of external relationships to compensate for China's growing power vis-a-vis Japan. In the middle of all of that, Korea is the biggest and most important vulnerability of all. It always has been for Japan. You know, the dagger aimed at the heart of Japan. For a thousand years, Korea has been sort of like Belgium is to Britain. And yet, somehow Japan's strategic community is incapable of finding a way to improve relations with Korea 
which from Washington's point of view, as you know, on a bipartisan basis, people think is crazy. You know, why why don't Japan and Korea solidify the relationship so that both countries have more leverage vis-a-vis China and North Korea? And I understand the politics Kishida-san faces, but is anybody in Tokyo trying to break through the politics and say, this is strategically really important for Japan, or is it just going to have to wait for a better result in Seoul or something like that? You've heard me say this many, many times, and you know I'm not the only American expert who harps on this. <laughs> You're probably sick of it. Mike, I'm afraid not yet. I wish, you know, there would appear a bit different voices from particularly the younger generation political leaders, but not yet. But I think that's, you know, uh, even though I agree uh, to what you said, but uh, you also have to take into account of that uh, geopolitical dynamics also changing between Japan and South Korea, uh, not to that same extent to uh, Japan-China. I think uh, Korea is now developing so fast. And, uh, you know, in terms, for instance, of defense, uh, national defense expenditure, the Korean's uh, defense expenditure is larger than Japan. And economic wealth also, Korea is catching up Japan uh, very much fast, as Japan has remained to be deflated over the past 20 some years. So I think that's one a major factor why that some many Koreans now feel that it's necessary for Japan-South Korea relationship to be rebalanced. And you, you just cannot underestimate this kind of national pride and uh, also, you know, increasing uh, power that Korea has acquired uh, relatively vis-a-vis Japan. It's true. At the same time, in polls consistently, over 70% of Koreans say they don't like or trust China. So there's a lot of churn. There's a lot of continuity and change in, 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 in Korean national identity, and I wouldn't give up yet. But I hear you, it's difficult for the near term. What about strike? You know, Kishida emphasized Japan's acquisition of strike capability in the LDP presidential election. Was that so that he could burnish his hawkish credentials? Or do you think there's real momentum towards serious strike capability? And what kind of strike capability do you think Japan would need against a China or a North Korea? Presumably not a I South think Korea. Actually, when Abe resigned a year ago, in September 2020, uh, he uh, made that uh, remarks, actually farewell remarks, uh, just before he actually uh, left the office. And that was that a need to develop strike capability. He didn't say that Japan must develop that capability. It's a time for Japan to seriously consider uh, as an option. Okay. And Kishida also has followed this line. So it's still in the exploratory stage. But I think that serious policy thinkers and makers in both uh, Minister of Fi- uh, Foreign Affairs as well as Minister of Defense are really now seriously considering acquiring that uh, strike capability uh, as a Japan's option, uh, given that uh, deteriorating strategic uh, situation surrounding Japan. And at the core of that issue is how to really strengthen that deterrence power uh, vis-a-vis China. So uh, I think this will not just go away, and uh, we will be keep 
being confronted with this uh, critical issue, uh, you know, for many years to come. And so, so strike capability uh, is one of that, those issues, in my view. Fifteen years ago, even ten years ago, this strike capability debate would have alarmed people in Washington, maybe in Australia. Not this time. I think there's pretty broad mm. support and recognition. The big questions are, how do you do it? Do you um, do it in a way where you're enhancing the alliance, where we're operating better together with unity to deter China? But this will be a, t- a hot topic going forward. You're spending a lot of time at the Asia-Pacific Initiative now on geoeconomics. And Japan's economic statecraft has really taken off. When Abe became prime minister, my uh, assessment was that about 17% of Japan's trade was covered by economic partnership agreements or FTAs. When Abe left, it was like 82, 83% of Mm. Japan's trade. Huge new leadership role that's as significant as what Abe did on collective self-defense. Meanwhile, the U.S. gets an F, a failing grade for geoeconomics and economic statecraft. Won't join TPP, can't seem to get uh, any agreement inside the administration on a digital trade agreement. Um, Just a lot of symbolism so far. And China's asked to join CPTPP. So how do you see the overall geoeconomic game in Asia right now? Is, Is the U.S. really losing badly? Is Japan holding things until we get back in the game? Is China skillful? How do you see the game right now on the geoeconomic front? Yeah, on the geoeconomic front, I, I think the critical need to develop a sensible, meaningful economic security uh, strategy is long overdue. And I think that belatedly, we really now appreciate how critical this uh, geoeconomic front is. And I think that's uh, encouraging to see uh, Biden Suga summit now finally addressing these issues in uh, their summit talks last April. I think uh, China's challenge to liberal international order uh, is multifaceted, multilayered, I should say. But one of them is that uh, they really want to use their market power as a leverage. And if possible, when necessary, weaponizing that market power and uh, economic interdependence uh, uh, in their favor. So as China will continue to uh, grow, albeit on lesser, uh, slower speed, that uh, China will not give away uh, this leverage uh, so easily. We will have to live with this China with proclivity to resort to economic statecraft uh, whenever they find necessary to use. So I think that Japan and the United States in alliance, as well as uh, with the other like-minded countries, have to pool the resources and to integrate their strategy vis-a-vis China in a very, very critical field, such as uh, semiconductor, 5G, and earth, and also green technologies. So I think that we are organizing slow appreciating this challenge, but finally we actually now recognize that need to uh, cooperate. But in the uh, economic security field, it really requires a strong collaboration between the government and the private sector companies because the companies are are main players, uh, unlike the traditional national security policy 
So uh, even between that allies, that companies are often competitors and even rivals in some cases. And uh, even though, you know, the, uh, Japan and the United States were solid allies throughout 1970s, 80s, particularly 1980s and early 1990s, that trade friction, trade war, quote unquote, was so intense as exemplified in that agreement on seven conductor in 1986. So uh, I think we should not underestimate the challenges ahead in forging the economic alliance between the U.S. and Japan. Vis-a-vis China. Yeah. Do you think the new economic security minister, Kobayashi-san, is empowered to forge that kind of strategy inside Japan and with the U.S., or does he have the authority or not? I hope he is empowered sufficiently to uh, exert leadership in formulating that economic security policy within Japan. Japan is so notorious, was elsewhere, but particularly notoriously in silo structure among agencies in bureaucracy. And the economic security requires that integration of that related agencies to come up with that very much effective economic security policy. So I hope that uh, he uh, should be uh, given the mandate to do that, but it really Prime Minister Kishida uh, uh, must uh, lend his support to uh, uh, Mr. Kobayashi. He is a very, very uh, promising younger generation of Japanese politician. And he's very much familiar with these issues. He uh, was a team of uh, Amari Akira, the former Secretary General of LDP, also uh, in charge of economic security policy in LDP, a policy research council. So uh, he was very much f- familiar with that. And he is very much, I think, now in a very much uh, good position to pursue a coherent economic security policy in Japan. Let me wrap up by asking you about your experience founding Asia Pacific Initiative. It was called Rebuild Japan Initiative Foundation, RJIF, because you created it right after the March 2011 tsunami and nuclear disaster. But it seems that independent think tanks in Japan, especially API, are really making a mark in a way that wasn't possible 30 years ago or even 20 years ago. Is the government looking to think tanks more or are the problems bigger? How have you managed to, to have such a successful, and it really is a successful and well-regarded institution, shape Japan's policy debate, which you didn't see in think tanks in Japan, you know, a generation ago? Mike, I'm grateful for your very generous uh, remarks on the think tank. And uh, I was very much, uh, you know, uh, privileged to have you as a distinguished guest scholar at a think tank from day one. That's, so that's, you that's why you were successful, growth. right? Yes. <laughs> that's why, that was the secret. <laughs> so, exactly. But let me say it this way. Japan has gone through about 30 years of deflation in a way, lost a decade. And uh, we have seen the Japanese government one after another coming up with that new growth strategy. Some accounted uh, 23 times uh, of Japanese government coming up with that growth, new growth strategies. Now has worked. Why? Well, for various reasons, in my view. But that I think the most critical part of this problem is that nobody actually has done a serious review of what went wrong with that policy. 
And the Japanese government doesn't have any strong incentive to do that. Uh, so I think that somebody has to do that. It should not just leave that, you know, government, the Blue Ribbon Commission to do that. Independent scholars, researchers, and uh, preferably think tanks, uh, I think, uh, uh, are tasked with this need to do this. And uh, at our institute, we have deliberately put forward an objective to critically review the public policy, uh, particularly when it comes to that that uh, national crisis and a big national agenda. And I think that's uh, what it, it's very much now needed. Now uh, we are still in process of uh, fighting against that COVID-19. The Japanese government uh, policy is to set up the commission to review after the COVID crisis was over, will be over. Okay. But I think that there are some ways for the Japanese government to do that in an interaction review, if not that after action review. Okay. So that's the reason why we published interaction review last October to critically review that Japanese government response to the COVID-19. The best practices as well lessons learned, both. So uh, that's very much important because as officials need to feel assured that we are not just attackers on them, uh, should must be good listeners to them. And they, uh, you know, uh, and that's very much into which we re- what we really need is to ask the right questions and critical review of that uh, government policies and actions. So I think that's certainly I'm biased here, but very much needed, critically needed in Japan, in my view. So that's a p- perhaps that feel that we excel among um, uh, think tanks in Japan. And listening to you, I, I, I'm realizing you excel in think, among think tanks globally. I mean, there are, I cannot think of other think tanks that do the kind of deep, deep probing post-mortem analysis of policy failures and then use, using that to come up with best practices. You've done it on the nuclear disaster, on the lost decades, on the DPJ government's collapse. And in a very blunt and honest way and lengthy, I read your, I mean, your reports are long. They're detailed at these commissions. And, you know, maybe only a journalist could think of that kind of approach to running a think tank, but it's very, very influential. And, and frankly, it builds consensus around Japan's strategy. It's an important part of it. I encourage everyone to, to look on the API website which of course has uh, English and Japanese reports, which is another thing you do, which is make sure the global audience understands. So it's been a great lesson for us today, but also all the work you've done at API. Thank you, Oichi, always a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Likewise, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to this podcast. And uh, I really, really appreciate your invitation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Asia Chessboard. We will be taking a break in December and we'll return with new episodes in January. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.